Clive Davis is a legendary record producer and music executive. He's credited with signing some of the most famous artists of the 20th century, including Bruce Springsteen, Santana, Aerosmith, and Janis Joplin. But as the story goes, as president of CBS Records in the late 1960s, he was tasked with figuring out a way to replicate the success of Motown and Stax Records. In other words, he wanted CBS to break into the fast-growing black music market. And so he asked a, a group of business students at Harvard University to create a report, the study of black music, which was like this mythological thing for such a long time. Mark Anthony Neal is the James B. Duke Professor of African American Studies at Duke University. And now you can actually buy a copy on Amazon. But, but it laid out a blueprint on how the major record labels could be able to have more of an impact on the making of black music. And, and it was very clear, right? You know, don't buy Motown. <laughs> don't, don't buy Stacks. Find folks who, who knew how to find talent that needed help around distribution. And so Philadelphia International Records is the first example of this. Clive Davis knew about Philly's talented songwriting and A&R team, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, and in 1971, signed them to a deal where they would leave Gamble, Huff, and company to do their thing. And in exchange for their music, CBS would take care of worldwide distribution for Philly International. Needless to say, the deal was a smash success. It becomes a blueprint for what we now understand as boutique labels in black music. The great successes that we see from labels like Def Jam and LaFace and, and all these quote unquote black labels were all a byproduct of this move towards creating boutique labels, you know, amongst the major labels to be able to facilitate the production and distribution of black music. By the late 1970s, Philly International had sold millions of records in their partnership with CBS. Although Gamble and Huff never rested on their laurels with multiple gold and platinum albums under their belt, this period at Philly International is defined by a few fascinating passion projects. John Morrison, and this is Vinyl Me Please Anthology, the story of Philadelphia International Records. When they initially launched Philly International, Gamble and Huff brought along some folks they had been working with for a long time, including the OJs and the Intruders, but also quickly built up a deep stable of incredible talent, including Billy Paul, Teddy Pendergrass, Lou Rawls, and the Three Degrees. So by 1977, they were sitting on a ton of unreleased music that had been left on the cutting room floor. Mark Anthony Neal says successful label owners like Gamble and Huff often feel pressure to find ways to give back to the communities that help make them. And so the idea of doing an album in which the you know album proceeds would go to some sort of targeted social organization that's doing good work you know in the hood you know absolutely makes sense. It's often difficult to get artists to do new music in this context, right? But if you have an archive of stuff that's been unreleased, you know that's that's the perfect way to do it. Philadelphia International Records put out the compilation Let's Clean Up the Ghetto in 1977. The album featured many of the stars of the Philly International Universe, including the OJs, Archie Bell and the Drells, and of course, Teddy Pendergrass. Have you taken the time to see the shape this world is in? 
you know, this is kind of in between Teddy Pendergrass leaving, you know, Harold Melvin the Blue Notes and his own solo offering. So let's get a Teddy Pendergrass song, you know, on there. And, and so, you know, my, my favorite song from that album is the Teddy Pendergrass track, um, Everybody's Talking, right? Because, you know, it's a cover of this late 1960s pop song that, you know, spoke politically to, to what was happening in black communities, right? And kind of updated it. Everybody's talking and I can't hear a word you say Only the echoes of my mind And my other favorite song was, uh, you know, the OJ's The Big Gangster. You know, one, because it was like this kind of big band song, right? All the horns and the strings, a really big song, you know, in three minutes. spoke to you know some of the ways in which gamble and house music gave you a wide array of what was happening in black communities right I, I give them credit they didn't just tell all the positive stories they didn't tell all the good stories right they dealt with some of the difficulties that were happening you know in black communities and and, and you know what better way to deal with that in the context of an album like that see that uh, in the Af African-American community, we used to travel a lot. Kenny Gamble. Up and, I, and, and a couple of brothers that was with us, promotion people, promoting our records. Every city that we would go to, they had the same problem. The black communities were devastated. And so Clean Up the Ghetto was uh, uh, the beginning of it. Let's Clean Up the Ghetto, the compilation's title track, is the one song that was recorded specifically for the album. It features a who's who of Philly International stars, including Lou Rawls, Billy Paul, and Teddy Pendergrass. Kenny says it was tough for him and Huff to nail the writing because they wanted the song to be upbeat, but also carry a serious message. But it was, it was about what we see, you know what I mean? We saw that our communities were being destroyed. You hear Lou Rawls talk, and he was talking about how you saw the trash. There was a, a strike in New York and the trash and everything was all over everywhere. And Lou Rawls, when, he, when he's talking on that record, he's talking about New York and how we were walking down the street and had so many uh, bags of trash and rats and roaches and everything. You know, I was in New York City a few months ago and the garbage and the trash men won't strike. I'm talking about the maintenance people for the city. What they were trying to do was they were trying to get a little more money, you know, get a little raise and pay. But at that particular time, the city was broke. They were about ready to declare default. I tell you, the garbage in some places was stacked up two, three stories high. At night. So what we were talking about is cleaning up the ghetto. So we took it to a lot of major cities. We had all those artists on there. All those artists were there. And, you know, we did the best we could to, to bring it to the black community's attention. But you got to clean up your neighborhood. You know, 
but it only brought to mind the fact that you can no longer depend on the man downtown to take care of business like he's supposed to when he's supposed to. In order for us to get it like it's supposed to be, as far as cleanliness, you know, and safety, we got to get together and do it for ourselves. That's the only way it's going to be done. And you remember what I'm talking about? Let me tell you what I mean. Shirley Jones of the Jones Girls remembers hearing Let's Clean Up the Ghetto on the radio in California. We had just moved out to Los Angeles and uh, Philly was the prominent records that were coming out that all of the uh, radio stations were tuned into during that time. So it was the call to action for black people, that music, and we were like, man, that, those, those people in Philadelphia, they, they are gambling huff and that team of people over there, they're coming up with some strong lyrics and music for mm. black people to not only dance to, but to be and become inspired and enlightened and hopefully get out there and make this social change that, that was necessary, which was the theme through the latter 70s in the black communities. Hearing these powerful songs convinced Shirley and her sisters that they needed to join up with Philly International. They signed just two years later. Proceeds from the Let's Clean Up the Ghetto compilation album went to charity programs. And Kenny says that he still hears from people today about how the title track resonates with them. We got quite a few uh, salutations from different governors and people and whatever. I think it did good. I mean, they still play it today. I mean, it's everywhere. In fact, Amsterdam, it's been number one. That, that record comes back every couple of years over in Amsterdam. And they, they always send us some kind of a, a reminder about Clean Up the Ghetto. So it was a worldwide hit, international. Leon Huff has dedicated his life to making the artists around him shine. By 1981, Huff had written hundreds of songs for Philly international artists not to mention all of the music that he wrote and produced with Kenny Gamble in the years before the label was formed. You know, we think about Gamble and Huff together, but you know, Gamble's contributions were largely lyrical. Huff was, was the keyboard player and, and musician, you know, in the mix. Again, Mark Anthony Neal. Gamble is gonna dominate everything, all our memories of that particular period of time and that label. In, in many ways, you know, his spiritual presence, if you will, at PIR, you know, Huff didn't have that kind of presence. When you see pictures of Gamble and Huff, right, you don't quite know what's going on in his head. Huff finally decided to offer a glimpse inside his mind with the 1981 solo album, Here to Create Music. It's a mostly instrumental effort and the only solo album of his career. This album kind of speaks to this kind of creative side of who Leon Huff was, right? And, and, and gave him a chance to have a voice. Music for the soul of man. I'll always went in the studio and get instrumental. Always like to do that. I just said, well, I just had all these instrumentals on my tape. 
Leon Huff says he was overflowing with ideas and it was just time to get it down. I just had so much music on my mind. And the um, song that really come out that album was I Ain't Jive and I'm Jamming, which was an instrumental. That song is special. One take, no music, just a head session. And it was amazing how they followed me. And uh, I Ain't Jive and I'm Jamming is classic right now. Let's lock it in. You know the formula, right? One. I Ain't Jivin', I'm Jammin' is one of Huff's favorite tracks on the album to this day. He recorded it in one take at Sigma Sound with some of the label's best studio musicians. I said, come on, I said, just go in the studio and mess around, is what I said. And I said, I had no no idea where I Ain't Jivin', I'm Jammin' came from. I just sat down and started improvising. And the first person who heard that was Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones, the legendary record producer and songwriter, probably most well-known for his work on Michael Jackson's most successful albums, including Thriller. He found out I was in California. He said, come on to my house, little man. I said, I got some music you want to listen to. And I put the album on. He had his earphones on. He had some, some great equipment. He listened to the album. thought it was really different. But what got me was when I Ain't Jiving, I'm Jamming came on, The bop is a social dance that goes back decades, deep into the history of Philadelphia's black community. He said, man, what is that? That's a killer. So when I got that from him, I knew what it was. Soon they put that record on every jukebox in in the community. It took a life of its own and it's still popular today. You can't have a party today in Philly without that record. invited artists from the Philly international world to guest on the album. Teddy Pendergrass, Eddie Levert, and the Jones Girls all make appearances. And there's even a cameo from his good friend Stevie Wonder. Yep, that's Stevie Wonder playing harmonica on No Greater Love. I called him up, Stevie Wonder. He said, man, I, I'm coming to Philly. I'll be, I, I can give you half an hour. I said, okay. I said, okay, half an hour is cool. Me and Stevie end up staying in the studio at like five o'clock in the morning. Stevie is like, what a music mind. There's not a black music producer collective or label that emerged, you know, in the post-1970s that didn't look to Philadelphia International Records and, and Gamble and Huff particular as models. Mark Anthony Neal says that Philly International Records' impact on American culture to this day is enormous. You know, when you think about their imprint 
on culture, black culture, and really think about the fact that their their real payday really was just relatively short period of time, you know, roughly from 1972 to 1979. To have the kind of lasting impact that they've had on the culture is pretty extraordinary. As a budding artist, the biggest influence they had on me was the lyrics. Shirley Jones says that artists like her owe so much to Gamble and Huff. I love the music you could dance to, but I loved the message in the music because I'm a lyricist myself and, you know, Gamble always uh, allowed us to have two songs that I wrote myself on every Jones Girls album. And I learned from him, you know, there's messages in, in everything I write about and the strong messages for you to not, not just dance to, but to, to listen to and hopefully be inspired by and enlightened. Reflecting on the legacy of the label 50 years after its founding, Kenny says that he feels blessed that their music has been able to reach people all over the planet. That's what we were speaking to. We were speaking to the whole world, gambling off, you know what I mean? And, and we had fun doing it. The spirit helped us, you see? The spirit of goodness took us and propelled us to all of this madness. You've been listening to Vinyl Me Please Anthology, the story of Philadelphia International Records. This episode was written by Alex Lewis with help from me, John Morrison. This season of Vinyl Me Please Anthology was produced by Alex Lewis and John Myers of Rohome Productions. The executive producer for Vinyl Me Please is Amelia Sutliff. Special thanks to the people at Sony Music and Philadelphia International Records. I'm John Morrison. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.